Hello, my fellow fallible humans. This is the Red Roof Recovery Show, a program to soften the path of recovery from substance and behavioral addictions. But it's not just for addictions. No, this is also for life. First, I just want to take a moment to thank my dear friend, Russell Allen Scott, for writing this beautiful piece of music. It's called Greatest Bravery. And it's such an appropriate theme song for this show, too, because it has certainly taken and still takes great bravery for me to speak publicly about my addictions to drugs and alcohol. My name is Tanya McIntyre, and I'll be here with you for 30 minutes today and every week sharing the experiences that I've acquired over the years through my own recovery from mental health disorders, including addictions. And I use a variety of tools and techniques that I'll be sharing with you on each episode of the Red Roof Recovery Show, because there are literally hundreds of tools you can use to manage life and addiction recovery. The key is to keep looking until you find something that resonates for you. And once you find something that actually clicks for you, just keep doing more of that, assuming that it's something good for you, of course. During my decades of addictions, I was fortunate to not lose one of the most important relationships of my life, my marriage to my husband, my life partner, Lancelot, who is bravely returning with me for another week on the Red Roof Recovery Show. Thank you so much for being here, my darling Lancelot. I so appreciate you being here because you help relieve a lot of my anxiety around speaking publicly about addictions, because it's not an easy thing for me to do. I would imagine not. No, it's burying yourself, which mm. isn't easy. It is not easy. And uh, yeah, having you here also when you're talking, it gives me an opportunity to have a sip of water, which also helps alleviate <laughs> my anxiety. So thank you so much for being well, here. So in previous episodes, uh, Lance has shared his experience about what it was like living in our relationship. We've been together over 30 years now. And I often thank you for your endurance through that time because you were literally watching me sometimes killing myself every day mm -hmm. and feeling quite hopeless around that. And we talked about what that experience was like for you. You mentioned the seven stages of grief, which are shock and denial, um, a state of disbelief and numbed feelings, pain and guilt, um, anger and bargaining, depression the upward turn, reconstruction and working through it, and then finally acceptance and hope. But, you know, anyone who's been through grief or going through grief, you know that those stages don't necessarily happen in that order either. No. So thank you so much for being so open, talking about those experiences. And it, it was actually an episode that got the most views and the most feedback. So clearly we're on to something uh, talking about the challenges for friends and family who are living with people challenged by substance use disorders, alcohol use disorder, uh, general mental health disorders, because that's what addictions are. They're mental health disorders. So now we're going to turn the tables and you have put together some questions that you have never really posed to me. And I've, we've never really talked in depth about what the experience was like for you. Uh, because my, rego my recovery journey started in 2009 when we were living in Spain. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't been a linear journey by any stretch of the imagination. I've had uh, several relapses over those years. And it wasn't until 
2018 when I went in search of a more secular program because I had been in 12-step programs since 2009 and a chronic relapser, going to a lot of funerals for my peers who were also in the 12-step programs and not not clicking with uh, the steps, per se, and a lot of them not returning from their relapses. So, after my third funeral in as many months, I thought, this is, this is insane. Uh, it's just going to be a matter of time before I don't return from my next relapse. And I was afraid. I didn't want to die specifically, even though I was doing things that were slowly killing me. Uh, and I went in search of a more secular uh, recovery program, and I found SMART, Self-Management and Recovery Training. And again, why I encourage everyone to keep looking for something that clicks with you is because when I found SMART, Self-Management and Recovery Training, it's founded on the principles of cognitive behavior therapy, which is a thinking therapy, which resonated with me. And I thought, oh, okay, I can get my teeth into this. And I was, it resonated with me so much that I decided to become a facilitator. I took the facilitator training, and I've been um, hosting meetings in-person and online meetings for addiction recovery circles since that time. And I'm happy to say since that time, I have managed my abstinence from harmful substances and behaviors. So it's worked for me, and I'm passionate about sharing those experiences with you. But like I said, there are hundreds of tools of recovery. The key is to keep looking for something that clicks with you. Well, this, so let's hear your questions, my darling. Well, this is more of for the friends and family because people without an addiction, well, we, we all have addictions. We call it destructive addictions. Um, we have a hard time understanding why. So these are a couple of things that I thought would be nice to talk about. So the first point I would like to raise is, when did you first realize that you had a problem with addiction? And looking back, were you in denial before admitting it to yourself? Mm. So when did you, when did you first realize that you didn't have control? Can you remember? Um, yeah, actually I do. It was when we were living in Baden, and I went to see a doctor for some something. I can't remember the actual details, but she had prescribed something. It was an antibiotic. And when you pick up a um, prescription from the pharmacy, you're given an insert, which is basically instructions of how to take it and what the potential side effects might be. And it said on this insert not to take this medication if you consume three or more drinks a day. So I took it back to her and I said, Dr. Reimer, you're going to have to give me something else. I can't take this. She said, why can't you take it? I said, because it says not to take it if you have three or more drinks a day. And she said, who has three or more drinks a day? That I do, doesn't everybody? And she said, so you're an alcoholic. And when she said that, it was like a slap in the face. And I be immediately became defensive. And I said, no, because, of course, I flashed back to my mother and father, uh, who were both chronic alcoholics, but again, manifesting 
that illness differently, where my father was able to sustain sobriety for months, sometimes years, and then he would be a binge drinker and disappear for weeks at a time. Uh, my mother was a daily drinker, and some days were good, some days were bad. So I was comparing that, and of course I heard all my life that I'd be just like my mother, you're going to turn out just like your mother. So I had that comparison to say, I'm, I'm not as bad as her. I'll never be as bad as her. So that was, I think, uh, an, a bit of an awakening for me, but I was also still in denial, right? We say in recovery circles, denial is more than a big river in Egypt. And I was heavy in denial. I became defensive, and I didn't go back to that doctor. So hmm. avoidance was, was huge then, denial and avoidance. So you'd, you'd grown up in a, an environment where people had addiction problems, mm. and you didn't recognize it until that moment in yourself. Well, recognizing it and accepting it were two different things, though. When she so said, yeah, you, were, I, you were traversing that river. Absolutely. Yeah. I floated in that river for a long time. <laughs> I, I had a very comfy floaty <laughs> in that river. And, well, so, so much so that I got a different doctor. What does that tell you? Mm -hmm. And... You know, I, I stayed on, on that path of denial for several years. And what was the rest of the question? Well, that, that was basically <laughs> it. Like, when did you first recognize that there was a, a problem? And looking back on it, were you on denial before? So Absolutely, I was in denial. And I left that saying, you know, who the heck does she think she is? She doesn't know anything just because she's a doctor. <laughs> yeah, book of excuses. Mm -hmm. Okay. Every time I'm talking to somebody who offers me an excuse, I, I, I jokingly say I would put that in the book of excuses, but it's already there. <laughs> I'm afraid you would know. <laughs> um, so, once you admitted that you had an addiction, how long was it before you sought help? And, and obviously, what was the catalyst for the help? Mm. Well, the catalyst came several years later when uh, we lived in Spain. So I'm not even sure of how many years passed from the time I had that doctor's appointment, um, whereby I was just in denial saying she doesn't know what she's talking about. I know nothing like my mother and father. Um, you know, I was still managing a successful career. Um, somewhat managing our finances, you know, we hadn't lost anything. Our relationship was still intact. Of course, I was still hiding so much from you as well, mm. um, living with that level of um, shame, deception, um, actually contributed to the progression of the illness, for sure. And then when we went to Spain, which was 2004, 2007. 2000, 2007, thanks. See? I mean, it's just like 2007 a, to yeah. 2011. Mm -hmm. So a lot of blackouts I was having as well at the time uh, that I wasn't really acknowledging. And 2007, uh, a friend who I had made in Spain uh, had, she said she wanted to have a dry January. So in Spain, where... Two of my favorite things, brandy and wine, were cheaper than water. Um, did a couple of things for me. It helped me spiral downward very quickly. And I had a friend who was 
the start of the catalyst for me because she she said she was uh, she was you know able to go and social drink with me and said I'm when I met her one one day in January she said no I'm not I'm not drinking I'm having a dry January I think she called it I said oh there's a novel idea I think I'll join you and I couldn't last the day and probably within a week of that time I woke up one morning after staggering to bed. I used to crawl upstairs to bed when you were long asleep. And I got a call in the morning as I, you know, woke up, hung over, uh, had probably my second, third drink by the time the phone rang uh, at nine o'clock. And he said, hi, Tanya, it's Anthony from Serenity House. How are you doing? I said, Serenity House. Oh, that's kind of cool. Serenity. I could use some of that. And I had uh, been, obviously been on the computer looking for help the night before and didn't remember. And he said, you know, we have a bed here. Uh, explained about the program, told me the cost. And I made the decision to go, not before calculating, looking at the calendar, thinking, I've got one more weekend that I can have my last hurrah kind of thing. And made arrangements to go the following Monday. So I think I remember you saying that even on the plane going to... Oh, yeah, I got drank all the way on the plane as well. So do you think you've, you were ready? I felt ready at the time. I felt desperate. Is desperate and ready the same thing? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think I was desperate, maybe not ready. Because when I arrived, um, I think... It was the right place at the right time for me. And timing, oh man, I can't tell you how important timing is with recovery. Because if you don't hit it at the right time, it's not going not gonna to stick. <laughs> but it didn't stick, did it? It didn't stick. No, it stuck for a while. Hello. It created a good foundation for me. Um, how long? That's uh, probably not even a year. Okay. And that was while going to meetings as well and lying through throughout, not admitting that I had. So, did, you, or did you relapse while we lived in Spain or was it when you got back to Canada? Oh, no, while we were in Spain. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I hit it and managed it very well. Yeah. And as much as I don't like the term high bottom alcoholic, you, you hear that a lot in recovery circles, and it irritates me to no end because, I, you know, everybody's bottom is different, and everybody's ability to manage their addictions is different. I just happened to manage mine by the skin of my teeth. But it was, uh, it took a great deal of energy. Yeah, just the... And deception, the deception that it took. Hiding it. Well, that's that's one thing. If you are in a relationship with someone who's in the throes of addiction, there is no doubt you're going to be deceived. It's just one one of those things, and you can either get annoy, annoyed about it, or you can accept it as part of part of the package. That mm -hmm. hopefully will will be able to navigate through 
and come out the other, other end. Well, I'm glad you're, you had the willingness to want to navigate through it. A lot of people don't. Um, you know, SMART has a family and friends component, uh, which is growing exponentially because friends and family of people who are challenged with addictions, there's not a whole lot of support for you. In 12-step, you have things like Al-Anon. Yeah, um, I went to one. Yes. One of those. But if it doesn't resonate with you, what are the chances you're going to go back? Well, there was none. Right. Because <laughs> I didn't. And there's not a lot out there, which is another challenge. So, yeah. Well, that's just one question, sweetheart, and no, we've that's, got uh, that's two 12 questions. minutes left. That's two questions. Oh, was that two? Okay. That was two. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, so we talk about wet brain in recovery circles as well. I think I've got that as well. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure about it. So describe what it felt like when you relapsed after abstaining for an extended period. And why do you think it happened? Because from, from the perspective of someone who doesn't have an addiction, we look at it like you've conquered it. You're, you're at that place that you wanted to be. Like, Why? Why would you jeopardize why, that? Why would you go through all that pain again? Mm-hmm. Because you explained to me, like, you know, the, the fact of feeling like, like you wanted to die in the mornings and, you know, being sick in the mornings. And, and I'm thinking, why, why would you put yourself through that once when you've, you've actually be, been abstaining for quite a period of time? So describe what it's like, what it felt like. Like... I think it was different, a little bit different each time. Um, I think primarily a lot of self-loathing and path of least resistance. So life management skills came into play there too. I managed my life by deadening my emotions. If I couldn't deal with my emotions, I'd take a pill or a drink, to numb them and make them go away. Um, I, I equate it to, you know, as kids, your bicycle tires. If you overinflated your bike tire and you took your thumbnail and you, you hit that little valve to let the air out a little bit, that's, that's how I would equate the, in my inability to manage my emotions. So that's what drugs and alcohol did for me. It was that the nail on the valve releasing the pressure. And it was a path of least resistance. I think... Uh, you know, we humans are hardwired to take a path of least resistance. And for me, uh, having a pill or a drink was the path of least resistance. So from my perspective, again, from a totally different perspective, obviously, that would not be the path of least resistance. Waking up every day feeling like you wanted to is definitely not what I would call. I can remember when after abstaining for four years because I thought you were still abstaining and you bought me some beers one time and I'd never had a hangover and I consumed four beers after abstaining for four years and I woke up the next day with the little man in my head beating the drum something I'd never experienced and I asked you did you go through this every day and you said yes and I said why would you do it why would you actually put yourself through it so for you to say it's the path of least resistance, there must be a lot of turmoil going in inside your head. Well, I think I agree with Dr. Gabor Mate, 
Uh, Dr. Maté is a Canadian doctor who worked uh, on Vancouver's east side, which is said to be the most chronically addicted population in North America. And he worked there for a dozen years, and he said the common thread with most people who are challenged by addictions is trauma. Primarily childhood trauma, but it doesn't necessarily have to have happened in childhood. It could be from any point in your life. So I think maybe I, I underestimated the trauma that I experienced throughout childhood and was self-medicating the anxiety and depression that uh, developed through that trauma. And then, I don't know, just it, it becomes a habit. You become habitually used to taking something to treat the pain, to make the pain go away, the pain of emotion, the emotional pain that I just didn't want to look at. I didn't want to do the work to process that emotional pain. So I wanted to deaden it and numb it. And the easiest, fastest way to do that was with drugs and alcohol. Hmm. Okay. Did I answer the question? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, do you think that not only admitting to yourself that you had an addiction, but talking openly has helped you on your journey to abstaining from using hmm. your preferred means of deadening? Well, that's a double-edged sword, so to speak, because, uh, you know, I'm full of anxiety doing this show and talking about it and opening myself up to uh, judgment and criticism and, uh, you know, exposing the shame and guilt that comes with uh, addictions and recovering from addiction and admitting past behaviors it's not an easy place to be. It's very uncomfortable. So I presume that's because society still views having an addiction as some type of moral failing, something in you that you should just be able to, you know, that there's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Well, and sadly, 12-step programs are set up to be shame-based, which is why I went searching for something uh, more secular and inclusive and non-judgmental. Because there's a, there's a great deal of self-flagellation um, in 12-step programs that I don't think is helpful for a lot of people. And the anonymity that exists around addiction sends a message that uh, you want to remain anonymous because it's a shameful state to be in. So who wants to admit a shameful state? Okay. So you're, you're, doing, you're doing this show. Yeah. You... You openly promote Red Roof Recovery with the fact that, you know, you've had your own problems. Does this help you, even though it's a double-edged sword? Or do you think not doing it would serve you better? No, I think absolutely doing it helps me, clearly. The proof is in the pudding, as they say, right? I mean, I've been a facilitator since 2018 with self-management and recovery training, SMART. And rationally motive, other cognitive behavior therapies have definitely been an integral part of my successful abstinence. Absolutely. Because you know, I was a relapsing through 
the early part, from 2009 until 2018. That's nine years of relapsing. That's a lot. Luckily, I lived through my relapses. Mm -hmm. A lot of my peers didn't. So what type of reactions do you get, negative and positive, like when you admit openly, whether through business or that, that you have addictions? Is it's, it, is, it's it more, is it more negative than well, positive? Well, I, I think we're evolving. I think as a society we are evolving because addictions are so prevalent now. Um, you know, certainly the opiate crisis uh, speaks volumes for how vulnerable people are. And I think that may have opened up conversations that we were reluctant to have before. That I think everyone is affected in some way by addictions. If not personally, then you know somebody, friend or family, who's suffering in some way with well, mental health disorders like addictions. So I think the conversations are deepening, which is what we need. Well, as I said at the beginning, I think everyone has minor addictions, be it gaming, binge-watching TV, food, exercise. Most of us have some behaviours, but they're not deemed to be destructive. Whereas, you know, if you're using any type of substance that is affecting your life in a negative way, that's when people start to look for answers. So, have I answered your questions? You have. Yes. Look, and we've got more than three minutes to go. Amazing. Whoa, that was uh, that was a bit of a roller coaster. Hmm. Thanks for that, sweetheart. No, thank you for being very open about. Mm -hmm. So hopefully, the openness and vulnerability expressed has opened up some possibilities for you. I'm really excited that we have started some family and friends uh, outreach programs here in Canada's prettiest town of Godrich, Ontario. So if you're struggling with any addiction, you can get help now with our re weekly recovery meetings. We're now at the Godrich Library every Tuesday from 1230 to 1.30. And every Sunday you can find us at St. Vincent de Paul Thrift Shop from 12 to 1. And if you'd like some in more information on that, by all means, please email me at redroofrecovery at gmail.com. And if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the program, then please email me. I'd love to hear from you. And if you or someone you know you think might qualify for the unique residential program for Red Roof Recovery, then please reach out to me as well, redroofrecovery at gmail.com. I've written a couple of books that I'm very proud of, and they are in honor of my father, who raised me as a single dad in the 60s while struggling with his own addictions. No easy feat for um, a young man in those days. Rest his soul. He was a fabulous man, deserves a legacy of greatness. So I've written a couple of books in his honor, and I call him Philosopher Dad, which is what I used to jokingly call him. Uh, when we were growing up, because he used to spit out a line of philosophy when I brought him any problems, hoping that it would make it go away. So he was a bit of a stoic, uh, well-read in philosophy, and he passed that on to me. So my first book is Mindful Wisdom from My Philosopher Dad, Sage Advice from a Single Father. So it's a little bit of a self-help book, um, 
sharing some of the philosophy from my philosopher dad, some mindful wisdom to navigate this sometimes mindless maze of life. And then during the pandemic, to uh, maintain my sanity, I decided to write another book in his honor. It's called Daily Wisdom from My Philosopher Dad, Some Inspiration to Guide Your Days. And this one I set up as a journal because journaling uh, has been very powerful for me. So I would like you to not only buy my books, but when you read the daily message in this Daily Wisdom book, I would like you to take a few minutes of contemplation and then write your intentions for the day because I find our words are powerful and our written words can be life transformational, magical. They certainly have been for me. Thanks so much for being here. You are an integral part of my recovery journey. So thanks for spending 30 minutes with me every week on the Red Roof Recovery Show. Remember to talk to yourself like you talk to your best friend. May the force be with you. And remember, you are the force.